You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed and forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea only, a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on who calls on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too 
have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. This is Geared Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, November 2nd, 2021, for episode 179 of season 3, 244 of this podcast. I've just read for you Romans 9 through 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul writing to Gentiles in the eternal city, Rome, telling them about this mystery, this confusing, wondrous, hard-to-understand dynamic, which has very often throughout the history of the church and the world been misunderstood because it is hard to understand. Paul says here, to not be arrogant, to not be conceited, to not be puffed up towards those who were the original cultivated olive tree. They were branches from that original root, but they were cut off because of their unbelief. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited towards them, lest you too be cut off. But he says other interesting things here regarding election and God's choice and God choosing whom he will and rejecting whom he will. He says some interesting things here, Paul does. He concludes at least the selection that I just read for you, by saying, who has known the mind of the Lord? How unsearchable are his ways? And I think of having just recently read Martin Luther's On the Bondage of the Will, rather, Martin Luther's Bondage of the Will, his response to Erasmus of Rotterdam and a diatribe on free will. Erasmus makes much of that last part And Luther takes exception to it and does not like that Erasmus camps out on that passage and emphasizes it. Who has known the mind of the Lord indeed, but we have God's revealed word. and We should know that. Good point. Touche. But with regards to the righteousness that comes by faith, by grace, through faith, we should not be puffed up. We should not be conceited. We should be humble and Ironically, given what else we read, Old Testament and New Testament, faith without works is dead. And yet, it is not by works that we are saved. We are not saved by works. That's very important to remember. And it should cause us to be glad, for one thing, because our works are insufficient. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And it should also help cure us of a great deal of anxiety with regards to trying to puzzle out how to be perfect, how to be holy. Martin Luther is famous for having said that the Christian life is one of repentance, perpetual, lifelong 
repentance. You will be repenting your entire life. And for any of us who have been Christians for some time, if we think we stand, we do well to be cautious lest we fall, because that is also biblical. It's biblical to stand, yes. It's also biblical to not get puffed up in standing. It is biblical to ask God, why is this happening to me? It's also biblical to hold our tongue at a certain point when God speaks and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And so I'm thinking about this problem of evil, and I want to revisit it from several weeks back. I did an apologetic talk for the youth group at Summit View Community Church in which I touched on Romans, this selection that I just read for you at the top of the episode. I touched on a portion of that, and I'm going to be part of a panel discussion tomorrow night for youth group, wherein we're going to go back over these apologetics talks, and we're going to do a little bit of a Q&A for the youth group and discuss objections. Here's what you're answering. Here's what you're saying is the answer to this question. For instance, how can a good God allow for evil in the world? How do you account for the problem of evil in the world given the fact that God is supposedly good? How could a good God allow for evil in the world? And then you answer, or I answer, for instance, for example, in that particular questions case. We need to double check our presumptions. Where do our presumptions come from about what is fair and what is reasonable and what is good? Whether God is just, what do we presume there? Do we presume that in order for God to be good, he has to meet our standard? Or should we rather put our presumptions, our presuppositions about the goodness of God or the lack thereof, the justice and fairness of God or the lack thereof, Should we put those off to the side and come in humility and consider that by definition, definitionally, the God of the Bible is not subject himself to some outside standard. He sets the standard. When we come to the God of the Bible, presuming to sit in judgment over him, we are coming in pride. We're coming in arrogance. And we should not suppose that we're going to get answers. And maybe that's part of why we do sometimes come to God in pride and arrogance, because we don't want the answers. We don't want the answer to the question. We don't want to subject ourselves and submit ourselves to God humbly. But for God's grace, we're incapable of doing that. But by God's grace, if drawn by God, according to Romans, even if we are from unclean stock, Even if we're from a pagan, ungodly people that we're not his people, God can call us his people and graft us in just to show his pleasure, just to show his goodness, just to show his mercy and his power. And so I've got to today at some point type up a one-minute summary of my talk from several weeks back. If you want to listen to that talk approximately, it's not quite 100% what I ended up delivering in the end. But if you want to go back and listen to that, 
I do have a podcast episode from September 20th titled Why a Good God Would Allow for Evil and Suffering in the World. I spent a lot of time in the book of Job. Check it out. It is 34 minutes or so long, episode 149 of season three, 214 of the podcast. For more information on that, otherwise, you can just be praying for me as I sit on the panel. I'm excited about it, looking forward to it. Several other men that have also, who have also given apologetics talks are going to be up there. And so it's going to be kind of a bing, 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 go down the line. You give a minute summary, you give a minute summary, you give a minute summary. Now we're going to cross-examine you. And we're going to see how do you go about answering an objection to what you've just said is the explanation. How do you answer an objection? And let's learn something in the process of doing that. But that's all I'll say for right now on that subject. I want to cover a couple of other things in this episode. For one, on a lighter note, I realized yesterday morning after I finished up with the podcasting that Age of Empires 4 is out. It's been released. It is available to play. And it is free to play if you have an Xbox Live Game Pass subscription, which we happen to have. Xbox Live Game Pass Good for Xbox games and also PC games. I had already pre-downloaded Age of Empires 4, gave it a spin, played the tutorial, and then I encouraged my boys to go ahead and install it on our other computers. So then they played the tutorial, gave it a spin, and then late afternoon, we fired up a multiplayer game, tried it out. Now I'm very sad to report we were not able to play a full game one way or the other of multiplayer. For some reason, the game kept crashing for each one of us. And so then it became almost kind of a, well, I guess whoever's the last one to crash maybe is going to be the winner uh, or the last one to not crash after everybody else has dropped off like flies one by one. And so Josiah won the second game that we fired up. First game, it was uh, Solomon and then myself that our games crashed. We dropped out. Didn't want to. It was pretty early on, just a few minutes in. And then Josiah resigned so that we could fire up a new game. So then Eli ended up winning that game technically, kind of, sort of. The game thought he won. And so he won that one. And uh, then the second game lasted a little bit longer, but then again, Solomon, then Eli, then myself, and Josiah won that game. But it was fun. We're going to have to figure out why the game is crashing. Don't know what's going on there. Probably should start with making sure everything's updated as far as drivers go. Maybe adjust the settings, see if we need to dial those down a little bit. Maybe it's a bug in the game that they're going to figure out, they're going to fix. Hopefully so, but fun times because Age of Empires 2, that was back in the day, that was my jam originally. That's what originally got me interested in history way back in the day. I remember the first tutorial playing William Wallace 
in Age of Empires 2. It's this medieval strategy game, real-time strategy game. And I was hooked. I loved it. And it made me interested in understanding, okay, what actually happened here? What is the story that I'm playing? And is it true? Is this true to life from what we know, from what historians believe based on their research has actually happened? And it was kind of a gateway drug, honestly. Age of Empires II led to a whole lot of other historical strategy games that I picked up. And then eventually it led to a lot of reading of history, a lot of listening to audiobooks on history. But fun times, if you can play a multiplayer game, it feels like I'm back in high school a little bit. If we can just figure out the crashing thing and get some Age of Empires going in this room, it'll feel like one of those old local area network parties with friends from high school. My, my brother and I, we would go over and take our computer, a big clunky giant monitor, heavy CRT monitor, cathode ray tube monitor. Before the flat screens, this thing weighed like 40 pounds. It was ridiculous. Cart that in, put it on the folding table. Folding table just like groans under the weight of this monitor. Like it's going to just break in half. And you set up at your friend's house on a Friday night and you play all through the night. Don't sleep. And then play into the next day. And you go home just absolutely exhausted. Just absolutely spent too much Mountain Dew, too much pizza, too much Doritos, too much fun. It was it was good times. But if I can kind of recre- recreate that, if I can kind of relive that a little bit with my sons, then I don't know. I, I think that's something... I think that's something to try to do. My sons will have an experience with their father that I didn't have growing up. My dad, I don't remember him ever playing any video games, any computer games with me. He might just glance at it every now and then, but it, it was usually just kind of a passing glance. If it was a violent game, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I don't like that. Why, 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 do we, why do we have to play such violent video games? If it was a more creative game, like a city builder, SimCity, you know, that was another one I used to play. SimCity 2000 came preloaded on the first Hewlett Packard computer we bought from Best Buy in the early 2000s and played that one a lot. That was a lot of fun, also. Uh, SimCity was okay. Uh, some of the kind of historical city builder games. Those were also pretty cool. Pharaoh was one of them. Um, I think the other ones were a little bit more named after um, gods of various places. You know, like I think Zeus was one, and then the expansion pack was Poseidon. And so then that one's a Greek city builder, and then Caesar was one. Or Caesar. I think there were multiple editions of that, but then that's like a Roman city that you're building. So you're placing all these different buildings and trying to keep everything going, kind of like SimCity, but it's more historical. And uh, Anyway, it was good times, good fun, and I'm excited to be able to play some of these games with my sons and get a good opportunity to bond with them thereby. But moving on in other news, I want to spend the last 
little bit, the last segment of this episode, talking about job hopping and talking about career issues, job issues, generally speaking. And I might bounce around a little bit here as I'm exploring the topic, so bear with me. But I was thinking towards the end of yesterday and also today about some feedback I got from a friend of mine regarding talking about my job situation on this podcast. And one of the cautions that he gave was I would be really restrained if I were you talking too much about your job situation, particularly when you've got some conflict, particularly when you've got issues with a manager or managers that are difficult that you're trying to sort through, you know, in his line of work, you would just never talk about those sorts of things on a podcast. And that makes total sense. That makes total sense. He's in law enforcement. You're not going to go to the airwaves and talk about your work situation with a current situation, with an ongoing investigation, let's say. You're not going to go there. I think in my context, it's been easy to graft in here and there references to work in part just to say, hey, this is who I am. I am a human being. I'm a real person. I'm not just a disembodied voice talking about politics and philosophy and theology and culture and history and psychology and family and parenting. I'm not just a disembodied voice. I have a, I have a job. I have a career. I have a nine-to-five day job that is not this. This, is, this. this podcasting thing is not my day job. This is not where I make my living. This is not how I put food on the table for my family per se. Certainly not directly. It can contribute. It can have its place. It can have a role. I would love it if it were self-sustaining in and of itself, but it isn't there. But at a certain point too, when you are dealing with conflict and you are dealing with difficult situations at work, it's easy in my situation to then start having those come to mind as you're talking about other things. We put so many eggs in the basket of, as certainly as men, what we do for a living, it's easy to have it take up a disproportionate amount of mental energy, care, concern, passion. And I probably have, to my friend's point, I probably have overshared, to be honest, with regards to my job situation. And I need to scale that back. I need to scale that back until it's at least, hey, you know, this was an issue and here's the resolution. I can't comment on an ongoing investigation as politicians and government officials are fond of saying, as corporate spokespeople are fond of saying. I can't comment on an ongoing, ongoing investigation. We've got to let it play out. Well, there's a reason they do that and there's a reason I should do that. And they're, by and large, the same reason. So there's that. Related to that conversation I've been having with this friend of mine, and I really do appreciate his candor. 
I may not always take every bit of advice and follow it that I get from various people. I try to abide by the proverb that says that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. I may not take every piece of advice that every person gives me, but I will consider every piece of advice that every person I go to gives me. I will consider your advice and I will store it away and think on it and turn it over in my head like a Rubik's Cube. One piece of advice that's been given to me from a number of people over the years has been with regards to changing jobs. So as mentioned before, and I can talk about this now because these are previous situations, they're concluded. Uh, I worked for a super major oil and gas company when I very first got into the oil and gas industry. For four and a half years, I worked as an operator for a very big name. And after four and a half years, I felt like I've learned what I can learn in my current position. My avenues for advancement are blocked because of internal culture, local uh, work group culture uh, in ways that I don't see how I can affect. I see people that are over this work group trying to figure it out and they're having a tough time and not sure how to do it. And I'm not seeing how to affect change here. And I'm seeing some things change, which are not to my benefit, not to my family's benefit. And I'm, I'm going to go. I, I've four and a half years. I feel like that is sufficient and I'm going to go do something else. And what I wanted to do is basically what I do right now. I wanted to get into the INE thing and I wanted to do instrumentation, electric controls type work. I felt like my skill set was disproportionately compared with the other guys that I was working with in the oil and gas industry. It was much more suited to technology and figuring these uh, these sorts of things out. And also, it was much more transferable. There were a lot more um, opportunities, as I saw it, to do things in the broader economy. If I ever needed to get out of the oil and gas industry entirely, I was worried that being pigeonholed as an operator, while it might translate into operating in other contexts outside of oil and gas, it might also not be as easy to do something else besides operating yet in an oil and gas context. If I tried to get into manufacturing or mining or something like that as an operator, it might not be as easy and I might have to take a major pay cut. And that concerned me. I have a big family. I'm the sole breadwinner. And I didn't want to get pigeonholed. So I stepped out of ConocoPhillips after four and a half years and moved over to a company called ZEI, where I worked for one year, 11 months, just shy of two years. And at ZEI, I worked my way up. That was the first time I had ever had a promotion internally, and it was so exciting. I was so very, very excited. Just turned 30. I had just turned 30. And 
I started out as a field services technician, worked my way up to being an automation technician, worked my way up to being regional supervisor for automation services. That ended up being a poison pill. And again, internal dynamics being such as they were, I had tried to navigate some difficulties going to the proper channels, being patient, working with it, but it was just such a tax on my family, being away every week, not knowing how many days a week I was going to be gone, having really no limit on the number of hours I was going to work, and not making enough. I had taken a pay cut to step into the supervisor role, which seems like everybody I talk with who's ever moved from being hourly to salary in a supervisor role, it's always a bit of a pay cut, at least in oil and gas, probably in other sectors, it's not so much. You probably are looking at a jump in pay. And if I had been working 40 hours a week, it would have been a jump in pay. Maybe at some future point in time, it would have worked its way into being uh, 40 hours a week, and then I'd have all that extra time to do something else. But where we were at right then, November of 2018, three years ago, right now actually, as of yesterday, it just it wasn't working out, and I had an opportunity to go and work in-house with a former client. And so I did that, did that. And to be honest with you, if not for my wife's health issues, I would have been content to stay with Incana for the foreseeable. I was comfortable with what it was that I was doing. I was well-suited skill-wise, temperament-wise. I was well-liked. I was figuring things out. I was making my presence known in good ways. There were things that were irritating, yes. There were things that were annoying. But they were more than balanced out by the fact that my boss liked me. He was very uh, competent, very knowledgeable. He provided top cover. He was a big cheerleader. He was supportive. And when I left, when I when I told him, hey, I just I need to take this opportunity in Colorado, he shook hands from a distance from Utah to the extent that you can metaphorically shake hands from a couple of states away. Shook hands, wished me well, still on good terms with him, offered me the foreman position, and I was sad to leave, except I needed to. I needed to get my family to a place with better opportunities for education and healthcare. I needed to get my family to a place where we weren't going to have to drive over four hours one way in good weather, ideally, to get my wife to a, a doctor that was competent. Lots of health issues that she was working through. Colorado's got good health care, good access to good medicine, qualified healthcare workers, qualified doctors. We need to get there because this is just is too much. This is not sustainable. Can't be dropping all of our kiddos off with three families every time my wife's got an appointment, a surgery, a whatever. And and also can't be risking my wife's life. You know, I her knee surgery turned into a real scare 
that I was not expecting, I was not prepared for. Uh, some issues with anesthesia. I think they gave her too much. And I think she, I think I could have lost her just based on how that all played out in the moment. And so I was taking it really, really seriously. And I was weighing and measuring on the one hand, I can stay here and career-wise, it feels good. It feels good to feel supported. It feels good to have that top cover. It feels good to be cheered on by my supervisor who's really knowledgeable in this field and I get along with him and I get along with my work group. We have our moments where we're not loving it, but we work through it and we work well together and we're a well-balanced team. And I know my role. I know the role that I fill on this team, moreover. And it bothered me at the time, it still bothers me, to look at my resume and see 11 months within Canna. I don't like that. I don't like that it shows 11 months. I would have liked to have seen that be a couple of years. And in my book, two years, that is, that's a, a minimum. If I am looking at a resume, when I was regional supervisor for automation services, I was looking at resumes for potential candidates to come in and, and be technicians. And if I'm looking at a resume and this guy's here for six months and he's there for 11 months and he's here for nine months and then he's here for a year and three months and now he's applying at our outfit, I'm thinking this guy's maybe got a year if we're lucky. He's maybe going to be here for a year. And if I'm that guy, that's not where I want to be, right? I get it. You know, I've had feedback from several people saying, if your resume is you jumping around too much, then somebody who's a hiring manager down the road for a job you really, really want and you're really well suited for is going to pass you over and say, you just don't do well with commitment. You, you just don't look like the kind of person who's going to be here long enough for it to be justified that we would bring you in. And so now here I am, right? And I'm hopefully I'm not oversharing, but I want to I want to explain because I know there's a segment of my listeners that is younger and that are young guys and I'm I love it. I love that some young guys listen to this podcast who are either in high school or they're fresh out of high school and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do career-wise, and I don't want to lead you astray with saying things that are a lot of nonsense and that are a bad example. I really don't want to put a bad taste in your mouth on the one hand for working life. Work is a good thing. It's God-given. It's by design that we work and we do profitable things and we build and we grow and, and all of that. Be skillful. Apply yourself. Apply yourself in a way that is profitable, that is beneficial to your family especially, to the people around you secondarily. But I also don't want to put a good taste in your mouth <laughs> with regards to anything that I might say that is not a good example to follow. And I, So I want to qualify here. I want to, I want to be clear that here I am two years three months with my current company. And I didn't come in thinking 
well, I'd like to work there for just a couple of years and then move on to something else. Uh, actually, originally, when I was offered this position, I was offered a relocation package, which was good. That was helpful. Getting down here it costs money to move a family, household full of stuff, get situated. So there was a relocation package to make that happen. And one of the stipulations to getting that relocation package is you've got to commit to being with us for a year. So I look at that, and as I'm here for that first year, I'm getting contacts from recruiters. They're seeking me out. I've got my LinkedIn profile all up to date. Recruiters are reaching out and saying, hey, we would love to talk with you about a job. And in some cases, I thought, you know, that sounds like a, an interesting opportunity. It doesn't hurt to talk with you at least. And in a couple of cases, we got to talking pretty seriously. And at a certain point, I said, you know, it sounds like it, it could be a good opportunity with you uh, to do what it is that you're describing, what you're looking for. I think I could do that well and I could do it successfully. But... For one, I need to put in at least a year in order to not have to repay a relocation package. So that's that's one. I got to think about that in order to be wise. For a second thing, I don't want my resume to be the patchwork quilt, hodgepodge. This guy has a fear of commitment, bounces around all the time. I don't want that. And so once I started saying, hey, I need to be here at my current company at least a year, I thought about it and I thought, you know, I need to be here at least two years. If I'm going to put in one year, I want to put in at least two years, especially with just under a year with in Canada. That's my last working experience on my resume. And the one before that was four and a half years. Four and a half years, that's good. That's plenty. That's the average from what I've researched. The average tenure for somebody to be with a company is 4.9 years right now, or at least recently, recent statistics, 4.9 years. Now, if you're in the 55 to 65 year old age range, the average tenure is nearly double that. It's, It's almost a decade, nine years plus that people that are that old, that stage of their career, getting close to retirement are typically at an employer for nine plus years. Now that's going to include, keep in mind, it's going to include people who have been with the company for 20 years, for 30 years, and people who have been with the companies for two, three, four, five years each, and they average out. But one thing you find when you do this research is that younger people in their 30s, for instance, on average, are changing jobs, uh, changing employers, moving from employer to to employer uh, much more often. And it's not a thing like it used to be back in the 50s. Everything I'm reading, whatever the advice is in terms of how long you should stay at a minimum with an employer, we're not in the same economy that we were in the 1950s. And that goes for employers and employees. So maybe in the 1950s, before the internet, before this vast ability, this this capacity to find 
qualified candidate states away. If you were in the job, once you're in there for four, five, six years, they don't know what they would do without you. They're so used to you doing it. They don't know who else could fill your shoes. They don't know of anybody who could jump into that. They don't know how to find somebody who could do that. If you left, you're a fixture. That's where the whole idea of having tenure comes from. That's where the whole idea of being fully vested comes from is once you're here for that amount of time, we don't know what we would do without you. Or at least that's the way it used to be. Now, if a new manager is over you and they don't like the cut of your jib, they tell themselves, all I got to do is reach out to three or four recruiters and they will scour the internet in this area and in the surrounding states to find somebody who's got the experience, the education, the temperament, and is willing to relocate. So we don't need you. And we want to let you know. In some cases, we want to let you know that we don't need you because we don't want you acting like your position is fixed. We don't want you getting comfortable. We don't want you getting complacent, maybe, perhaps, possibly. And also, we want to be able to rearrange things however it strikes our fancy. And if you don't like it, we want to put a check on you pushing back from that. And on the flip side, as an employee in the job market, a lot of young people who know how to use the internet say, if I don't like my current employment situation, I can look on job boards, CareerBuilder, ZipRecruiter, Indeed, LinkedIn, Craigslist, depending on what it is that you do. I can look around. I don't have to just count on stumbling into a potential better opportunity. And so you have younger people who are more comfortable with changing jobs, finding new jobs. Everything's changing. Everything's in flux. And I have the internet. Uh, Seeing what's out there and trying it and moving around. And I wonder if that changes. I wonder if that settles down a bit as we get older, as my generation, the millennial generation gets older, once we get into our 40s, do we say, you know what? This is it. This is where I'm at. I'm going to do this for the duration. Does that pendulum swing at a certain point where when you have jumped around every two to five years, you say, now I'm looking for the position that I'm in for 10 years, for 15 years, for the rest of my career, for the rest of my working life. But there's an added detail that needs to be uh, remembered in my particular context, especially for you young guys that might be looking at some other field in which to work, some other industry, some other sector, some other vocation. That is the volatility of the oil and gas industry. I would say that it's one thing if you're in a line of work that is not going anywhere, that is fairly steady. Uh, People are always going to need bread or the equivalent, food. People are always going to need food. And so, yes, you might have certain little things that come up 
here and there that disrupt the market. But bread's pretty stable, pretty steady. Bread is bread. Bread is not probably going to be entirely replaced with some newfangled technology. How you make bread might change with technology. It might be more automated than it used to be. People might decide they like certain types of bread better than what you made, but you're going to be able to ride that probably. If you work for a big bread company, Wonder Bread, you're making bread all the day, making dough, making bread. Uh, People all of a sudden decide they don't like white bread anymore at all, at all. And they all move over to rye. That becomes the latest thing, the craze. Then Wonder Bread's going to start making rye bread. And you're going to just change the recipe. And you're going to go right back to what it was that you were doing before. If you're the master baker, bread maker, you're going to make rye bread. And you'll be able to do that for the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, however long the trend lasts until people decide they like 42 grain bread, and then you'll make that. But oil and gas is a little bit different. It's a lot of bit different, actually. I don't know of any other sectors that are as volatile as oil and gas. That's part of why wages are so high. Uh, for the most volatile parts of this very volatile industry because you're not guaranteed a job in six months, in a year, in two years. There is nothing whatsoever which guarantees somebody who works on a drilling rig a job for the next five years straight with the same company for the next five years straight, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. doesn't matter how big the company is that you work for how small the company is that you work for. When the oil price crashes, you're quite possibly going to be laid off. You might make really great money, but you're probably going to get laid off. Now, it just so happens back in the day, I elected to not get into the most volatile part of the volatile industry that I'm in. I worked on the production side and everybody said, the closer you are to the wellhead, the closer you are to the flow line, the safer you are. And that was true. Four and a half years, I left when I was ready to leave ConocoPhillips. But then I went on to the services side of things to try and get that INE experience. Based on the market conditions, I wasn't going to get hired in to be an INE technician with no experience at a big company. I was going to need to get that experience with the services side. And then once I had that one year, two years, three years, whatever, then I might even get an interview with an Exxon, a Shell, a BP, a Marathon. But it works different. That is to say, it works different. The dynamics work different. And those who work in the oil and gas industry know this. It's very unusual for me to see an oil and gas resume on LinkedIn with the people that I'm connected to, where somebody has been with one company just their entire oil and gas career. Very unusual, especially somebody my age. Very unusual. I see a lot of people who've been here for two years. They've been there for a year. They've been here for a year and a half. They've been here for two years and some change. I see a lot of people in this industry who have resumes that look like mine. 
for better and worse. Now, if I could say I've been in the industry for nearly a decade, and during that nearly a decade, I had worked for one company, and at that one company, I'd been an operator, I'd been an INE technician, I had done a, a wide range of things, that would be great. I wouldn't mind that at all. And I see the value in that. I see the, the merit in that. But, you know, it's kind of like a friend of mine, Chad Cahoon down in Texas says, and he's got a fantastic resume in terms of the types of things he's done. He was a sonar tech in the Navy. He was a nuclear weapons officer for the Air Force. Then I met him at Conoco. He's been a systems integrator for Chevron. He's been a control room manager slash operator for various companies, LimeRock Resources, Oxy, XTO. He did systems integration for XTO, worked for Autosol, worked for Kinder Morgan. But my friend Chad, his comment to me has been, you know, when you're interviewing for a position, you should ask, are you replacing somebody who was recently let go or fired? And on what basis did they leave? Why did they leave? Why didn't that work out? And I would just say, you know, by virtue of how I got into the industry at the time that I got into the industry, there was a whole lot of people getting jobs because companies needed warm bodies and they weren't entirely qualified. And that was true for me to some extent, although I was more qualified than most and I worked really hard to try and prove myself, prove that I was a good pick. I was somebody that they would be glad that they brought in. And now I'm looking at it like, okay, you you do this, you do this to get your foot in the door and to establish yourself and to get experience. And then you figure out where you want to go from there. Get in there, see what it's like, and then study and pay attention and see what might be a good fit. Where do you want to go from here? And I think to some people who they're just, they're doing a thing and they're going to do that thing, um, content to do that thing moving forward. For me to say, I'd like to jump in and figure out next steps probably sounds a bit odd or it sounds a bit finicky or what have you. But again, advice that I would give to you young bucks, if you're thinking about oil and gas, know on the front end, it can be very, very rewarding, but there's also risk there. And by nature of the up, down, up, down, up, down of the industry as a whole, you will encounter people who prepare themselves for what lies ahead in industry volatility by trying to smush potential rivals. And you'll probably, you, you probably find that anywhere, not just oil and gas, but I, I think it is a little bit more dramatic in oil and gas because of the volatility. You know, if corporate comes down and they say, we got to cut headcount, we got to lay some people off, pick 15 people or whatever, pick five people, pick three people, and we're going to have to let them go. 
you don't want to be one of those three people. You don't want to be one of those five people, those 15 people. And in my book, the way I make sure I'm not one of those people is I work really hard. Pay attention to details. Develop a reputation for being professional, hardworking, diligent. Some people, their approach to not being one of those three, five, 15 headcount reductions is different. It's, they have a different approach. They have a different mindset on that. So I think one way or the other, just like I read at the top from Romans 9, 10, and 11, we're not justified by works, and God chooses to do what he will. So you have to trust the good Lord, and you have to not stress out about it. If an opportunity comes up that God has opened the door for, and he's leading you in that direction, follow the Lord's leading. Trust the good Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will raise you up. But I'm going to try to make that the last thing I say about my work situation in depth for some time, talk about some other things, particularly being on vacation this week. I appreciate all of you who listen. I appreciate your feedback, your encouragement. Even if I might not follow every bit of advice that I get, I will mull it over. I will ponder it. Hopefully, I'm setting a good example, being a good influence. But right now, I'm going to set a good example by going and getting myself some coffee, getting back to my vacation. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.